You're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Matter, your host, and I've got Elise Joshi on the program. Uh, Elise is the executive director of Gen Z for Change. Uh, Elise uh, just uh, was very prominently featured on the news because she was in the White House and uh, interrupted a press conference there advocating for uh, stopping the oil oil leases from being sold to various oil companies and expanding drilling in Alaska as well as other places across the U.S. and uh, taking a stand for change. And that, that video kind of went viral and has been viewed by millions or tens of millions of people across the world. And I thought it was uh, an amazingly bold statement and took a lot of courage to stand up there and and uh, speak your mind in front of um, you know powerful people. I, I thought it was very well done, and I kudos to you, Elise, for jumping up and having the courage to say what millions of others would like to say. So, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me and the kind words. So tell us a little bit about uh, your journey and what brought you to the place you are in the environmental movement. Tell us maybe what your, you know, experience were going back to uh, as a as a kid in nature. What were what were some of those experiences that you had in nature that uh, were you know, formed you as a person and, and, uh, felt like, Hey, I, I want to protect this. Wow. Um, so yeah, I grew up in the Bay area. I'm, I'm from the South Bay and I've never left. I went to college, uh, at Berkeley and I, now that I've graduated, I'm still living out here. So it appears that I'll never leave. And the Bay area is just beautiful. I, I feel very lucky to have grown up in a place that, has access to nature and I can go out in the trails in a couple of miles. And, you know, now I feel like I'm taking advantage of it more than I did when I was a kid, actually. You know, I I don't own a car and I bike and BART everywhere I go. Um, and luckily, I'm a, a couple miles away from the trails if I want to go on a trail run. Um, but honestly, growing up, it was it was I had a strong belief that I didn't have much impact. And even though I cared about the climate crisis and I read up about it, I I leaned towards STEM because I didn't believe that political advocacy was actually a, a tool that I could leverage, especially since a lot of people don't look like me in politics, um, especially when I was a lot younger and we didn't have people like AOC. Um, and yeah, it really took until the COVID crisis um, in 2020 before I, I developed a belief that, that my voice mattered too. So then, uh, what what did you start to do when you uh, when you felt, hey, I, I this may be something that you would like to advocate for in a in a political way? Yeah. So during COVID, I, I really took the opportunity to read a, a lot, and it was I think it was three to five books a week during you know the height of the COVID pandemic, and I realized in educating myself on the stats and projections of the climate crisis, in educating myself on the Trump presidency and what he was doing to roll back um, so many environmental protections, it wasn't enough. And I couldn't safely uh, talk to you know my peers in person because of the state of the world. And so I turned to where a lot of Gen Zers were, were using as well, and that was TikTok. 
I realized that this was a place that a lot of people are on in this moment. And I could talk to other young people about the climate crisis, the, the tie to voting since, you know, the 2020 election was coming up. And I, I started posting these documents that I made, these color coded uh, documents on the stats and projections of the climate crisis and the Trump presidency and all he's done to not keep his promises to fail the American public. And um, I posted them online and they did really well. And I just started using TikTok more and more um, as I went into college, um, realizing that this was a tool that I could use to, to make a difference. Well, that's uh, that's great. I mean, just kind of trying to find some way to communicate. Uh, I I ran for president against Trump in the Republican primaries in 2020 because I was disgusted by his stance on environmental issues and felt that uh, we need to make a change as a country and and that he was a failure as a leader, uh, in particular on the environmental issues, but on so many other issues. But uh, the environmental issues being so important that we don't get a second chance. We've got one planet, and if we ruin it, uh, there's no planet B. So um, tell us then kind of next steps of uh, your journey and and uh, where you went from there. Absolutely. So luckily, I met these amazing other creators on TikTok as well who are using their platforms to intersect voting with a number of other issues that they were personally passionate about, whether it was also climate or racial justice, LGBTQ plus protections, reproductive rights. Um, and these other Gen Z creators ended up forming what was called TikTok for Biden. Uh, it was a coalition of over 500 content creators with a collective following of over half a billion people uh, using their platforms to, to talk about the importance of voting as it related to a number of different issues. And so I, this was really my start of organizing and, and connecting and collaborating with other like-minded young people. And from there, after the election, it, it formed into Gen Z for Change. And you know, a year after that, I became executive director. And so now I lead this group that does much more than electoral politics, takes, uh, takes action online, supports labor unions um, and climate efforts and more on the ground and also holds the Biden administration accountable despite being called TikTok for Biden once before. And that's my day-to-day -day job. I, I can't believe it's my job now. Well, that's that's fantastic. I, I really like that uh, you're kind of living your dreams out, out loud and uh, so tell us a little bit more about Gen Z for Change. Uh, how many people work at the organization? Kind of uh, what are the what makes it tick? Yeah, so Gen Z for Change is still a baby organization. I mean, we started just two years ago as an official 501c4, and uh, we have about 12 to 14 people on our full-time staff. We're like hiring now, so I don't have exact numbers. And um, we it's it's a dedicated group at its core that are in passionate about a number of different issues, but we have a large creator network of hundreds of creators that want to make content, making a difference. Even if they don't have a political page, they might be passionate about sustainability or they may be passionate about labor and they want to engage in our campaigns. But at the core of what Gen Z for Change is, is it's a group of organizers, 
uh, that use digital tools, digital strategies, coalitions of creators to make effective change on the ground. And what's ultimately the goal is the impact, not the views that the videos get. It's about tangibly seeing how are the, the views making a difference in the real world towards the movements that we support. So how do you measure that? How do you how do you measure the impact? What are your what are your tools? What are your metrics for determining whether you're moving the needle? Yeah, it's that's the most important part. So Gen Z for Change has amazing coders on our team that are able to develop tools that young people can use through watching our videos online. So for example, uh, when it comes to supporting unionization efforts with um, striking workers. So 48,000 workers at Kroger's in Southern California were uh, going on strike for better wages and benefits and more. And they were hiring temporary hires um, in order to water down the strike, the Kroger's was. And what one of our amazing coders did was develop a code that allows people to send an automatic false application to these temporary applications in Kroger's um, and allowed people to, to flood those application portals very easily um, and take, take them down. And so ultimately, 40,000 plus um, false applications were sent through our social media advocacy and all temporary applications were taken down. And so it's one example of just we can track those metrics, we can track the impact and, you know, striking workers are benefiting as a result. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I'm a labor and employment attorney and we represent lots of employees across the state of California and we're always uh, advocating for change in workers' rights and getting paid properly and fighting against discrimination and, um, Sometimes we're doing it one worker at a time, and sometimes we're doing it for a whole class of thousands or even tens of thousands. Uh, so that's how we measure our impact. Uh, though I, I like the, what you guys are doing on the ground of fighting for it in different ways. So tell us, uh, what are you, how are you doing that for the climate? What are, what are the things that you do um, to, uh, to measure your impact on the climate crisis. Yeah, so one example of our work that was in coalition with hundreds of other climate creators and just regular people wanting to make a difference was with the Stop Willow movement that we saw earlier this year. Uh, in March 2023, the Biden administration approved the Willow Project, an $8 billion oil drilling project in the North Slope of Alaska. But back in February, I made the first video on TikTok urging people to write to the administration in the month that we had, um, urging them not to approve the project. And from that first video, I had no idea that it would go completely viral and it became uh, a campaign that no one could have anticipated. And uh, ultimately 1.1 million people wrote to the administration, urging them not to approve the Willow project. And over 5 million petition signatures were signed. And if you add up the three TikTok hashtags, um, it got 1.1 billion views. Um, and so ultimately, like this, this took over the internet. And even though the Biden administration's approved the project, it um, a lot of young people were educated on what the project was, why new oil drilling projects and new fossil fuel infrastructure is not important or, or necessary in this moment, and actually damages our future. And um, you know, 
we can use that momentum from Willow to continue the Stop Willow fight, but also continue the fight against new fossil fuel infrastructure. So that's one example of a campaign that we've done. Well, you're listening to A Climate Change. Uh, this is Matt Matter, your host, and I've got Elise Joshi on the program. She's the executive director for Gen Z for Change. Uh, we'll be right back in just one minute with Elise to talk uh, about her encounters with a couple presidents of the United States. to a climate change and this is matt matter and your host and i'm back with elise joshi uh executive director of gen z for change uh elise before the break we were talking about the stop willow comp- campaign where you got 1.1 million uh people to write into the white house as well as five min- million signatures and a billion 1.1 billion views on youtube regarding this and you know I think that's a win for uh, activating people to start taking action. And whether or not it stopped this particular project at this point, I think it may stop it later. So I'm kind of of the opinion that we don't give up and uh, you take the first step. And that war is not over in terms of stopping Willow. Like there's a lot of steps, whether it's litigation or... Uh, changing the law in in a more favorable way going forward. So the fact that uh, the fossil fuel industry got that uh, one win is not going to necessarily mean that they win at the end of the day. So um, I appreciate you you uh, activating all those people to come out against it and and essentially hold uh, Joe Biden, uh, President Biden, accountable for the promises that he made in that he was against this drilling. Um, what's What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, first of all, it was 1.1 billion views on TikTok, if you add the three, three hashtags. Um, but I, I totally agree with you. I, I think the fossil fuel industry and the administration are starting to really take notice of Gen Z's involvement. Uh, the fact that you know millions of people in a time where there's just so many issues happening all around the world. We have news at our fingertips. And yet all of us were so committed and involved in the campaign about an oil drilling project in the, a remote area of Alaska. Like that's that's pretty impressive. And I didn't expect that myself, uh, nor did any of the creators that were a part of this campaign. Um, so it, it was it was really inspiring. And I try to remind myself that it's not just about the battle. It's about the war. And, you know, I think we just geared up a lot of young people to be ready to continue fighting. So what's uh, what's the next thing on your your uh, your horizon in terms of projects that you're trying to work on uh, in the environmental movement, either well, to stop something or to start something or make an impact? Uh, hopefully a, a bit of both. You know, I think that we do too much. Uh, right now, there's a lot of conversation on stopping things. It's about stopping fossil fuel projects stopping Willow, et cetera. And I also want to be sure that we educate people on what the just transition looks like. So right now I'm trying to help UAW, their contract with GM, Ford, and Stellantis is coming up on September 14th. And UAW workers are demanding a just transition into the EV economy. 
And so it's this is a first example of what a just transition can look like in the real world in actuality. And it is up to the climate movement to stand in solidarity with these workers and to support their effort to have good union jobs in the EV economy and not to just have those facilities shut down and, you know, move to states that are right to work states that make it harder to unionize. So that's really one of my first uh, projects, but I definitely am I'm strategizing other fossil fuel related campaigns that I can help out with as well. Well, that that is such a big thing is that uh, there have been many arguments against the kind of uh, sustainable uh, transition away from fossil fuels saying, oh, okay, that's going to shake up the economy too much and there won't be jobs and the economy will go in a tailspin and we can't do this. Uh, and clearly that hasn't been the case thus far. There's been a tremendous amount of movement towards a more renewable uh, fuel source. And, and yet we have the lowest unemployment rate in a generation or in, you know, 50 years or something. So obviously we can do both at the same time. It's just a matter of um, putting, putting that as a priority, which I'm, I'm glad that you're doing work to make sure that uh, workers are taken care of in this transition. So where do you, where are you going next in terms of, uh, are you going to be supporting uh, Biden in 2024? Well, I, I think it's safe to say that my vote is open and it, it, it and that young people deserve to have their vote earned as any person deserves to have their vote earned. Um, you know, this this generation is largely disappointed in what Biden is doing on climate. Of course, we're supportive of $369 billion for climate. That is no joke. Um, but at the same time, Joe Biden has indicated that this is a first step. And so I'm really excited to see what step two is and step three, um, because in four years, I anticipate to have more than one step <laughs> done before the next election. And so, yeah, I, of course, I don't want to see, you know, Republicans take over the presidency and the House um, just, just because of, you know, we know what Republicans do for the environment already. Um, but at the same time, if we only have two options, it's important that our best option is the best option possible and and the one that you know really is a champion for climate so it's not about being the better of two evils it's about having a candidate that aligns with science and right now our president is not aligning with science and his continuous approval of fossil fuels well i guess i'd ask you in terms of uh you know the trump risk is it worth um getting one fossil fuel um you know say the Alaska, the Willow Project approved, if it meant that Trump was not elected, um, you know, is there some compromise on principles? Obviously, sometimes in, in politics, one has to compromise a bit. And uh, those of us who are environmentalists would probably prefer not to compromise on something like that. But maybe there's sometimes where compromise is necessary to uh, avoid a disaster situation like Trump? Well, I would like to remind everyone that it wasn't environmentalists that advocated to stop the Willow Project. Five million people petitioned 
for him not to do it. A million people wrote to the White House. It spanned beyond environmentalists and the movement became young people in an intergenerational coalition of people that just care about a sustainable future, that care about a future for their children, for themselves at this point. We're all experiencing the impacts of the climate crisis and it doesn't matter if you are a tree-hugging hippie or not. And even though I would identify myself as, as such, you know, not everyone involved with that campaign was, they just cared a lot about their future. And the administration really should think to themselves, if youth support for Biden's climate and environmental policy dropped 13% after the Willow Project's approval, he's ought to think about next year's campaign the same way that we do. If he does not want the Trump administration to take over once again, he's ought to do more for climate and align with science. Um, and, you know, I don't think that's too hard of an ask. It's a very popular ask among people across the aisle and not just environmentalists. Well, if you and your peers succeed, what will be the visible positive results in your lifetime? And if you fail, what would happen to our planet? Well, I am a serial optimist, so I, I don't, I don't want to fail. And I don't think there's one win or one failing moment. This is a, this is a grind till I die. And I'm very aware of that. Um, and, you know, I, I would see a win as building a, a future that works for everyone. And right now our country just doesn't work for everyone. And you know, right now it's about creating a circular economy that doesn't revolve around waste and overconsumption and overproduction. It's about uh, creating an economy that relies and, and, and values the everyday worker um, and values them in the decision-making pro process in their workplace. So good paying, good benefits, union jobs being, you know, a core part of the American economy again, as it once was. Um, this is about, you know, universal single payer healthcare so that, you know, American families are not constantly going into debt because they can't pay their medical bills. Um, this is about, you know, climate resiliency and making sure that people who experience climate disaster, like so many families are in Maui, that they have the funds to rebuild um, and, and have sovereignty over the land that, you know, was once colonized and is colonized. You know, this is it's an intersectional movement that revolves around health justice, gender justice, racial justice, economic justice. Um, and I know that seems like a very ambitious, hard accomplishment. But it's really the only way that we get out of this crisis. And it's the only way that, that the solutions to getting out of this crisis will be popular to everyone because it benefits everyone. Well, I, I certainly can get on board with uh, a lot of what you're saying. Uh, certainly a more circular economy would be uh, a great move in a positive direction with less waste, less plastic waste, less um, you know, waste in, that results in in carbon in our atmosphere and methane in our atmosphere. Um, so what does a, a failure look like if we're not able to accomplish these goals? I, I believe that we're going to get to net zero. And I, I believe that it's intentional that we're saying net zero right now instead of ending fossil fuel dependency. Because in the fossil fuel industry's eyes, net zero means technologically maneuvering our way to to less carbon emissions. They imagine, you know, direct air capture and, uh, you know, other geo geoengineering type solutions in order to, to reduce emissions and allow them to continue as business as usual. So we have the opportunity to not just 
eliminate carbon emissions, but have everything operate the same way, but instead create a world that works for us and not the fossil fuel industry that profits a hundred plus billion dollars every year. And well, so, a, well, amen to that. Uh, you're listening to a climate change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I am talking to Elise Joshi, who's the executive director for Gen Z for Change. Uh, I'll be right back with Elise to ask her some follow-up questions to uh, these many interesting areas that uh, we're talking about here. So stay tuned. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Battern, and I've got Elise Joshi on the program today. Elise, uh, kind of want to circle back to something that you had mentioned earlier, which was the indigenous groups. And uh, certainly that there have been a lot of uh, people talking about how we could certainly benefit from following a lot of their practices as a society because those groups did not create as much waste and they live more sustainably and how could we turn our society which is so consumeristic um and uh into something that looks a little bit more like the indigenous values of looking for far out in the future like a seventh generations out how is how are our actions going to look um what are your thoughts on that front and doing it in a way that's kind of practical because i think uh many people out there would think well that's just not practical we can't go back to living in tents and things like that well i i think it starts off by reframing our mindset on how we see ourselves as humans in the context of our ecosystem that it's a common indigenous you know philosophy that we we bear the burdens of our ancestors and the the problems that we created hundreds of years ago we feel in our bodies today and the problems that we create today our ants our you know future generations will feel and that's all a part of us you know throughout time throughout space and that allows us to you know not feel like we have ownership over the land but rather that we depend on the land and that we must take care of it if we want our own survival to to happen um, and then, you know, in addition, in addition to our, our own philosophy and mindset that we need to decolonize, we need to understand what to advocate for. You know, right now, as we're speaking, thousands of families um, and people in Maui are traumatized over the worst wildfire that we've seen in the United States. Over 100 people have died, and that is climbing by the hour. Thousand plus people have are still missing. And, you know, this is a direct result of hundreds of years of colonization of, you know, extracting the water instead of using it, you know, for uh, it, Lahaina used to be a wetland, though that water is being used to for tourists for a tourism economy that has not benefited the average native Hawaiian, you know, 50% of the homeless population in Hawaii is native, even though they're a minority of, um, of the islands at this point. And so when we think about solutions to the climate crisis, we have to think about ownership of land, like who who has control over the rebuilding efforts of Maui and Lahaina? 
And that, that ownership effort must go to natives from Maui in their rebuilding efforts. And so when we think about our solutions to the climate crisis, who to include in the solutions and the stewardship of our lands, we must include indigenous perspective and indigenous knowledge. Um, and so, yeah, it's both perspective and a solutions shift. Well, I guess in terms of just uh, from my lawyer background, I can't help myself, uh, say there are people that have the deeds to uh, properties that got burned down and they've owned those properties anywhere from two days to 200, you know, 20 years. Um, what happens to those properties? Do they go to indigenous groups or do they, they maintain ownership of it? What's your view of that? Well, right now we have a situation where there are private developers that are trying to buy off land from native Hawaiians immediately after the fires. So what we're dealing with right now is making sure that native land stays native. So that's the first effort because, you know, what we're seeing is an immediate land grab effort. Um, and as for the solutions in the long-term future of how to, you know, reclaim ownership of private land, you know, I, I leave that up to, you know, the city council that there's going to be a huge vote next year for the area of Lahaina of who they vote for in order to shift the, the, the decision-making process over to people who are actually from the island. Um, and, you know, I hope, I hope they come up with an effort that makes sense for everyone. So what do you want to be remembered for? What do you want your legacy to be? Um, I don't really want a legacy. I just want to, 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 for myself, be part of the solution. I, I don't, I don't have any personal career goals from this. I, I just want a sustainable future. And to be honest, like I, I know that you said I was living my dream by doing this work and I definitely feel like it's fulfilling, but my dream is to not have to fight tooth and nail for, for a future. Um, my dream is to have a bookshop where I can read and maybe there's a like restaurant on the second level and I can relax and have a family um, and work. Um, but, but I'm doing this, I'm doing this and I've been doing this since I was a teenager and I don't think I have, I should have to do that. Um, and I've met people a lot younger than me fighting this fight that I definitely think don't, don't have to be doing this. Um, but they feel like they have to. So yeah, my, my goal is to live a normal life. Um, and I hope that someday we fight hard enough where that's possible. Uh, well, absolutely. Um, and, uh, Obviously, we all have played a part in it to a certain extent, or our ancestors played a part in setting up this this situation, uh, probably more unconsciously than consciously, but I guess that's part of the problem is that it's, it is unconscious. Tell us a little bit about your heroes. Who are your heroes in the, in the environmental movement or just in general? Who would be up on your Mount Rushmore mm -hmm. of Elise's uh, heroes? Yeah, I when I was younger, like I said, I really didn't think that I had a voice and that people who looked like me, it was even possible to be in, in politics. And so I feel like I've got to say Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I, when I was a teenager, I, I saw Knock Down the House. I saw her passion for a Green New Deal. And I realized, oh, my God, like she's a young Latina that is fighting for climate justice. I guess I can do this, too. She's brave enough. Um, it's time for me to be brave enough. And I really, I really don't think I would be here without 
someone like her. And I, I appreciate her efforts in, in inspiring young people like me. Um, and then I, I also am just really inspired by Latin American politics. I see Lula's efforts um, when he was president before, but also now for, for ending deforestation in the Amazon. And just collectively, I think that you know, I'm inspired by my Ecuadorian family and just the, the perspective of a lot of people from Latin America to be very involved in the political world because they see how tied it is to their everyday life. And um, I try to have that mindset with me, even though the United States is very individualized and not a lot of people vote and uh, aren't as engaged in their local, state, federal politics. Um, and yeah, I, I, I have, my grandfather was really very politically involved when he was in college. And uh, when I was in Ecuador just a month ago, he was telling me a whole bunch of stories of how he organized when he was in, in college. And I'm inspired by that too. So that's three. You've got one more. <laughs> um, let's see. I think uh, I got to give it to the old white man, Bernie Sanders. Um, I know he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't exactly represent me in terms of identity politics, but he, uh, he inspired a generation to, to get up and not just fight for what we can get by with, but fight for what we deserve. Um, and that is not common in American politics either. Um, and I, I, I would have to give huge kudos to him. Well, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's always enlightening to me to hear people's heroes because everybody chooses different people and different people have a different impact. And so I, I appreciate you sharing that uh, with us because uh, it's, uh, it's a great thing to hear about because inspiration is such a big part of political change. So I think inspiration is what's requ required to, to move people. And obviously you've inspired a lot of people to uh, young people to get active. Uh, what, what do you think it's going to take to get more young people inspired and, uh, and maybe people who are not so young to get off, you know, get off their seats and get into action? That's the burning question. I really hope and I've tried to emphasize since that viral video that you can't borrow hope and you know, hope can be a renewable resource that you pull from to drive you to continue to act, but you can't get that through somebody else. You have to get that through your own activism, through your own involvement in your community. You know, it's about it's about young people and, and all generations feeling how the climate crisis has impacted them and their home. So, you know, it isn't just about <clears throat> the, the Biden presidency. This is about how how is housing related to the climate crisis? How is immigration related to the climate crisis? What is your community dealing with unrelated to climate or you know, related and tie it back to climate and see how you can tie those solutions together and see an immediate impact in your community? Um, it's about, yeah, it's about getting young people to act locally so that they can see the own benefits of their actions. Um, and I hope that my video didn't just inspire them, but, but actually get them to, to start thinking about how they can get involved. Well, I, I appreciate that message, and I, I believe that sometimes it takes another person asking someone to get involved to get them involved, because I think a lot of times people are yearning to, to help, but they don't know where or how, and so all of us who are involved in this, 
would be well served to um, go out there and ask somebody, hey, why don't you get involved? Uh, come help. Uh, come join me. So with that, everybody go out there and, and ask somebody. And we'll be right back in just one minute uh, talking to Elise uh, Joshi, who is the executive director of Gen Z for Change. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is your host, Matt Mattern, and I've got Elise Joshi on the program. And uh, Elise, we were talking before the break about acting locally, and um, I know one of your passions is urban planning. I believe that uh, that's something that certainly can drive change. Uh, You see a lot of uh, European cities thousands of people riding their bikes to work or, you know, all over the city, Um, you know, whether it's winter, spring, summer, or fall, they're out there on their bikes. And and it's pretty amazing uh, saving probably, uh, you know, bazillion tons of fossil fuels. And and, uh, you're you're a big proponent of, of not driving and using mass transit. What can we do to kind of drive change there? Absolutely. So, I'm lucky to live in the Bay Area where I can use the train and bike everywhere I go, but it made me realize what is possible even in a country where we have put all of our transit funding into roads. Um, And we think about, oh oh my goodness, how many billions of billions of dollars do we put into road work? And thinking about how much less damage just biking does to the roads, but we would need to repair less um, or, and spend less on our infrastructure if we just biked around. But more fun than that, um, biking biking is a way to like communicate with your surroundings better than a car. So does walking. Like, how can we incentivize people to to spend less time in a car and and actually experience the outside world and engage with their community? Um, you know, half of driving trips are less than three miles, and if we reduce those. Uh, we can make a huge uh, effort in our, our transportation emissions, but also make people's everyday lives and well-being better. Um, when my my partner sent me a, a photo when he was in Amsterdam of a man in a prosthetic leg biking with his buddies uh, in Amsterdam, and that really just shows the culture that's out there is that you you anybody can be on a bike and if we just build our infrastructure out to supporting public transit, buses, walkable infrastructure, that we'd be in a lot better place. Absolutely. Um, and it's, uh, as you said, it, it, uh, you get more pleasure in life when you do bike. So it's a win-win situation. You know, one of the things that I noticed, I took a, uh, a train ride from Chicago to Denver recently was just the sorry state of our, our train system here in the United States and that we probably have invested less than most third world company countries in, in our train system. And it seems like if we had spent a quarter of the amount of money that we spent building roads as to building a amazing train system, we'd have a train system that would be the envy of the world. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is an opportunity to, match up with the rest of the world at this point. I mean, you go to New York and 
I, I went through the tunnels and it felt like a magical labyrinth of, oh my God, like I don't even have to wait for the train. It comes every three to four minutes. And, you know, I, I can choose which train I want to go on to go to the same place. And as somebody that used BART, you know, if you miss your BART, you, you're, you need to wait 20 minutes until your next one and you're going to be late to wherever you're going. So you really got to be on time. You know, it, it, we are, we are used to less than the bare minimum in this country. And I'm lucky, you know, there should be a, a, rail system to get from San Francisco to LA. Why isn't there? And uh, why, you know, we should make it, you know, fast 200 miles an hour, or like, you know, you, we've got rails that, that are slow, unreliable or non-existent, and we can do a lot better than that. Yeah, that was one of the things I learned on my ride. One of the Amtrak uh, employees was talking with me and I said, uh, you know, the ride's kind of rough. And he said, well, it's all freight train tracks because the Amtrak doesn't own any of the tracks kind of east of the far, you know, the East coast and the urban belts, uh, right along the coast and the Atlantic side. So, um, it's, it's pretty incredible that I, I assume the fossil fuel industry was certainly behind defunding our railway system because it obviously benefited them. I wanted to ask you, you said you wanted to have a family based upon what you know. Do you do you really want to bring children into this world or is it uh, you, you afraid of that at all? Yes. Yes. And a lot of young people are afraid of is it ethical to have a child in, in today's world? But I believe that it's also a sense of hope. You know, I, I'm committed to to winning a Green New Deal. I'm committed to winning a just future for everybody. And, you know, I feel like it's me giving up by me not advocating for the future that I want and deserve. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not really willing to commit to this doom doomist mindset that we have failed so much that there should not be another generation that follows. And you know what, there will inevitably be another generation that follows. And by me being committed to a future that I really want, I'm that much more passionate to build it. That's a great point. And I, I think that um, one of the things that I had read about you was that you didn't, uh, didn't ascribe to this doomsday philosophy and that uh, you wanted to focus on solutions, which I believe is the best, w- the best method to approach this. We, we need to live in the solution. If we're living in the solution, there are just thousands of great people, actually millions of great people out there working on these um, solutions and trying to make the world a better place. And, and it can happen. Uh, We just need to keep working together, building this community, supporting companies and uh, governmental officials that are working for these changes and, uh, and voting for people that, that support these changes and, and the change will occur. Absolutely. So uh, what's the next thing on, on your docket? Where, where are you going? Oh, who, are, who are you meeting with? Where, where are you going to rock the world next, Elise? I don't know. I, I hope that um, I'm excited what other people are about to do. You know, I'm, I'm not there, but New York Climate Week is going to be a month away. And there's going to be, you know, mass protests as the UN has their climate summit of just, you know, regular people that really want 
uh, Biden to declare a climate emergency and take action on fossil fuels. So excited to see what other young people come up with on the other side of the country. Um, but as for me, I, I'm I have a few ideas cooking that I'm not able to share quite yet. But in the meantime, you know, really just trying to support the labor campaigns that are happening right now, like UAW, and um, also take some time to rest because a message to everyone out there, rest is super important. And, um, you know, we're trying to be here for, you know, 50, 60 years more in our fight towards climate justice. And that can't happen if we burn ourselves out in the next three. So I'm uh, trying to spend time with loved ones and bike around the Bay Area and have some time for myself. That's a good message. Uh, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So yep. you better... Uh, a friend of mine once said that to me a few years ago, and I, I think I've I've tried to adapt my life a little bit more to that philosophy because I think it is a sustainable one. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on COP28, which are which is coming up in Dubai, hosted by one of the biggest <laughs> oil and natural gas producing uh, countries in the world. Uh, is that going to be, uh, you know? a crazy situation or can we get some actual progress out of that? I think it's going to be both. Uh, COP28 sounds like a big contradiction right now, but uh, I anticipate the most fossil fuel lobbyists that we've ever seen at, an, at a COP in the past, but also a relentless, passionate coalition of young people, um, indigenous groups, Global South, activists and more like pushing as hard as they possibly can and um i yeah I, I can't wait to see what what comes out of it and i hope to be covering it on tiktok just because uh, a lot of young people don't even know that cop 28 is happening or what cop 28 is and uh, maybe there's some educational work that i can do around that yeah education is clearly one of the most important things we can do to raise awareness and um and there's so much to read and to learn about the climate crisis. And I appreciate what you were saying about how you were reading three to five bucks a, books a week. And that that's that really helps allow you to talk to this, talk about these issues intelligently and passionately and persuasively, which is a very important piece of this process. Like not everybody else is going to go out there and, and uh, read as much as you've read, probably. That's just reality. Uh, so thank you for all your great reading. Uh, I wanted to just uh, tell the audience to go check out uh, what you're doing as the executive director for Gen Z for Change. So uh, please do follow uh, Gen Z for Change and Elise Joshi um, and all the great work that they're doing and then follow us on our social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at climatechange.com. Uh, please check out our website, give us feedback, tell us about guests you'd like to hear. And um, so in the coming week, go out there and be the change you want to see in the world. Improve the environment. Talk to elected officials. Volunteer. Those are the kinds of things that you've seen Elise do so effectively. Stand up. Uh, uh, in the press room uh, confronting the Biden administration to do more. And that's what we all need to be doing. Step up and take the change into our own hands. So thank you, Elise, again for being on the program. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. 